If you will, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, last time, a few weeks ago when we studied Ephesians chapter 4, we covered verses 25 to 30, and it is there in those set of verses where we talked about both the putting off of certain vices that were characteristic of us in our non-Christian lives before we came to Christ, and the putting on of Christian virtues, that is, uh, the way we are supposed to live as we have come to Christ and been taught in Jesus. And since it's been a few weeks since we covered these verses, let me review them with you. If you look, for instance, at verse 25, Ephesians 4:25, it says, Therefore, having put away or put off, using that metaphor of putting away old garments, old clothes that don't fit anymore. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And we principalized that by saying, put off lying and put on truthfulness. Put off lying and put on truthfulness. We were characterized in our days outside of Christ, so many of us, with um, speaking falsehoods. Uh, It was usually spoken because it benefited us somehow, and we are supposed to be putting those things off because the idea of speaking falsehoods, they don't fit us anymore. We're changed. We're different people. Rather, we are speaking the truth with each other, with our neighbors, because we are members of one another. Since we are so inextricably linked with one another, we would, in a sense, if we were lying, speaking falsehoods, we'd be lying to ourselves because we are members of one another. And we shouldn't do that. We should rather speak the truth in love. That was the first of four of those putting off phrases that occupied our minds last time. The second is this, put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Look at verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul commands us to actually be angry, which sounds like it is a strange command indeed for us to be angry. Well, in what sense are we to be angry? Well, we are to be righteously indignant about the things that God is righteously indignant about. We are to curb that anger, however, and not let any sense of righteous anger turn itself into vigilantism or anything of that kind. Uh, It would be so easy for us to see all the evils of our world and to react against them not with righteous anger, but with very sinful anger at what the world is doing to malign our Savior and speak out against Christians. But we cannot do that. We are to be righteously indignant about the things that aren't right in this world, but we are to curb that anger so that it doesn't move itself into unrighteous anger. So therefore, we're to put off sinful anger and we're to be righteous 
in our anger. Thirdly, Paul says, put off stealing and put on honest work. Put off stealing and put on honest work. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Frankly, there is always going to be someone in need. Even the Lord Jesus himself said, the poor you always have with you. There's always going to be the opportunity to meet needs of people around you. And so Paul says, rather than steal from one another, rather than uh, thievery, put that off. It doesn't fit you anymore. It doesn't characterize you. So whenever you find that, that urge, that temptation to steal from one another, you should put that off, put that completely away from you. And what you should do in its stead is to be honest in your day's work so that you can receive the funds that you need so that you can turn right around and after meeting, of course, your own needs, meet the needs of those around you. Put off stealing and put on honest work. That's the third uh, principle that we discussed last time. And the fourth is this, put off corrupt talk and put on edifying speech. Put off corrupt talk and put on edifying speech. That's located for us in verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk, Paul says, come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. That's our word edification. Paul's using that metaphor. We even uh, refer to buildings as edifices. Uh, They are those things which go up. They're buildings which are constructed upward and likewise he says what you ought to do when you talk to one another is you ought to edify you ought to build up we're a spiritual house peter says and each of those stones in the building of that house are a little uh, stone cuts of jesus himself so that we ourselves as those stones are being built up to a spiritual house he says to the praise of our savior christ And he uses that same analogy like Peter does in 1 Peter 2. Paul says here, don't be corrupting in your talk. Don't allow that to come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, for edification as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of the opposite of grace, you should extend grace to others in your speech so that it fits the occasion, it would build them up, it would give them grace, it would give the hearers encouragement. It's opposite, corrupting talk. Corrupting talk. Uh, A filthy mouth. Speaking uh, so as to tear down. And when you do that, Paul in effect says in verse 30, grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has sealed you, has made a promise to you. He's, he's the down payment of God for the sake of our eternal life, our eternal dwelling. And because he has sealed us in that redemption, we're new people. We don't respond like we used to respond. I know that in my former life outside of Christ, especially through my high school years and in the first part of my, my freshman year in college, uh, I was someone who had an acerbic tongue. Someone who could cut somebody down in a moment's notice. Because it was good 
to fight verbal wars, war of wits with people who I thought were terribly unarmed. But it was sinful. It was wicked. It was something that did, in fact, tear people down. It didn't build them up. It didn't encourage them. And that kind of quick-wittedness was actually using the mind that God has given a person and using it for evil purposes. And that doesn't glorify God. So what we should do is put off that kind of corrupt talk and we should put on edifying speech, the kind that builds up and doesn't tear down. So we looked at those four principles uh, in great earnest when we preached on this subject last time. And I see four more tonight. Tonight I see four more commands of Paul to put off and to put on as contained in verse 31 of chapter 4 going all the way through verse 2 of chapter 5. Really only four verses with these four principles, but they are power-packed. Let's read them together. You follow along in Ephesians 4.31 to chapter 5 verse 2. I'll read it. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first of those four principles that I want us to study tonight is this. Put off old ways and words and put on their opposites. Put off old ways and words and put on their opposites. Look back again at verse 31. Paul says there, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And while I think the Apostle Paul isn't attempting at all to be exhaustive with the lists of sins that he gives us here in verse 31, with these six sins that he does describe here in this verse, he certainly is representing the kinds of sins, the categories of sins that Christians must progressively put off, to put away, to mortify, to kill in their lives. And by the way, with the verb that Paul uses here, put away, do you see it there in verse 31? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That's the same uh, family of words in the Greek text that we've been seeing. Look at verse 22, the first part of it. To put off your old man. And verse 25, therefore having put away or having put off falsehood. And here he says... These particular sins that he's uh, enumerating here be put away from you. Same family, same category of words. It's the same Semitic or the same uh, um, idea. The sentence structure is put it off, put it away from you. It's like this jacket; it doesn't fit, and so you can't wear it. It's 
It's beyond you. You've, you've progressed beyond that. Well, what are those? Look at the first one. He says bitterness. Bitterness. The Greek word that Paul uses here is pikria. And it means, by the way, in a metaphorical sense, something that has a bitter taste to it. Like a plant or foul water. And used in the context uh, Paul is speaking of here, it describes someone who's harboring resentment about what's happened to them. It may be something that's happened to them that's perceived, or it may be something that's happened to them that's real. It, it really did happen. Now, regardless, it's someone who's nursing uh, some kind of wrong done to them or perceived wrong done to them, but they're actually feeding their minds with constant reminders about the past and cannot get past that perceived wrong suffered. And this is something that even of late, I can think of, of two counseling situations, even over the last couple of months uh, that I've been involved with, that Beth and I have been involved with, and we have seen uh, from these counselees the kind of bitterness that Paul talks about here. One in particular, whom when I became involved, uh, the person uh, began talking about this particular area of their life. And when they began to talk about it, they began to respond with what was obviously coming out of their mouth, great bitterness of heart. And I remember specifically in that particular counseling session, uh, Beth said, you know, three years ago, when I first met you and began talking with you and you poured out your heart to me about these struggles in your life, I'm hearing the very same things from when you spoke to me three years ago. And she went on to lovingly admonish this person to say, the bitterness and the anger that you're experiencing is the same thing from three years ago. You haven't progressed at all out of these things. You're still, you're still nursing these wounds. You're, you're still grappling with these things. You're still battling uh, these problems of the past. Someone has hurt you. You've perce- you are perceiving that they are wounding you, uh, maybe not just in the past, but possibly even in the present. And what you're doing is of no value to your spiritual life. You've got to get beyond the bitterness. And that's what Paul is commanding the Ephesian Christians to do here, to put off this sin and replace it or putting on its opposite. And what would the opposite be? Forgiveness and joy. Forgiveness and joy. And you say, wait a minute. If someone has or is hurting me, how can you tell me that I should respond with joy? How can you tell me that I can move above this, move beyond this, move away from this. Well, I didn't say it was easy, but I am saying that Paul is commanding us here not to live as we once did in bitterness toward others for the perceived hurts or the real hurts that they have propounded against us. Yes, it might be something that is very, very difficult to overcome, but not impossible. Not impossible by any means. Why? Because now, now that we're in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to respond to these hurts, to respond to the, to the anguish of soul that someone has been perpetrating against me. And I am not slighting that one bit. It could be that people who have hurt you have done it in a way 
that with malice and a forethought they have said words to you, they have, uh, they have hurt you and wounded you verbally, and they have spoken all manner of wickedness against you. They may have done things that have hurt you terribly, and certainly all of us at one time or another have had someone come against us with either words or actions that are terribly hurtful. The question is, what do we do with those hurts? How do we respond to those hurts? The, the slights, the perceived slights, or the real slights that people have perpetrated against us. What do we do with that hurt? How do we respond to it? And maybe even a good second question is, what is God doing in allowing that person to perpetrate that evil against me? What's God's purpose in allowing it? What's he doing in my life as a result of people's sins against me? How am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to do? And certainly Paul is saying here, you can't be bitter. You can't continue to respond with a bitterness against those persons, no matter what they continue to do, no matter what they've done in the past. You have to look to Christ and say, you have saved me. You've delivered me from, you've delivered me from my sins. You have caused me to think differently about my circumstances. And you have given me the opportunity to respond in joy even at those who have slighted me terribly, those who have sinned against me egregiously. Lord, I need your wisdom. I need you to give your grace to me in the moment so that I can deal with these sins against me and against my life. It's not going to be easy, but the Lord gives us victory moment by moment when we progress out of a life of bitterness into a life of joy, even in the midst of people's sins against us. That's bitterness. The second, wrath. That's the second of these six words that he speaks of here in verse 31. Wrath. That's the Greek word thumos. And it's normally the word, I think with the exception only of Romans 2.8, that Paul uses to denote anger in human beings. Thumos. Even the very Greek word itself. It's almost uh, onomatopoeic, right? Thumos. It even sounds bad. It's wrath. It's um, not the word that Paul used in verse 26, by the way. Now, that's a different word. This word, thumos, combined with the word that he uses in verse 26, orge, which we'll talk about in a moment, He uses those words often together, and in our Bibles they are often used together, wrath and anger. That's the word orge. In fact, they're used, by the way, in uh, the book of Proverbs in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 16. We might be looking at a number of Proverbs tonight because I want you to see how practical the Word of God is as it speaks of some of these real issues that Christians are to put away from each other. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Very practical. Proverbs 16:32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoever is slow to wrath is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, his anger, than he who takes a city. Now let that sink in. Whoever is 
slow to anger, slow to wrath, is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, who, who rules his, his mind, the, the mental function of his life, uh, the mission control center, uh, who, whoever is able to, to slow it down and to rule himself, he's someone who is able to be fortified. You could say it that way. He's able to be fortified. Look at Proverbs chapter 29. Chapter 29, verse 8. I love this proverb. Scoffers set a city aflame. But notice its contrast. But the wise turn away what? Wrath. The wise turn away wrath. Just like bitterness, you want to turn away bitterness. You want to run from it. You don't want to become a bitter, angry, wrathful person. You want to say no to that. In, in the wise turning away wrath, there's wisdom there. That's why he's said to be a wise man. He, he turns away from that. He, he doesn't give full vent to his anger. His spirit is controlled. In fact, that's our third word there, anger, in Ephesians 4.31. I just mentioned a second ago this word anger is the word orge, and it's closely related to that word wrath. And it speaks of hot-headedness, of blowing up. That's characteristic of so many non-Christians. They feel their rights have been violated. They they feel like they need to get their comeuppance. They have oftentimes vengeance in their heart. They want to get at the people who have injured them. They become totally engrossed in bitterness. They have wrathful feelings against those who they believe have hurt them. And they have seething anger. They get all riled up. They get, they get to the blow-up stage. They're, they're hot-headed. That's, that's what anger does. That's what anger is. Look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about this anger and what we're to do about it. Principles to deal with anger. Notice what he says in chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning, for instance, in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In other words, you take action, severe action, against another person, and you slay them. But notice what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the authorities, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Those are strong words from the lips of Jesus. That's what anger can do. It can so settle itself into your heart, into your mind, into your life, that you become bitter. You can see even these things as a, as a stage, a step upon step, a, a bitterness, a, a rage, a wrath, and then a settled anger, a, a seething foment, against those who you have perceived hurt you. You want to do violence to them. And someone might say, well, I never committed any murder against anybody. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I've never hurt anybody. 
And Jesus turns it so internally. He says, you shall not murder. That's true. But what if you're angry with your brother? And in the church, in the Christian community, in the household of faith, how are we supposed to deal when we have conflicts with one another? Certainly not with anger. That's why he says here in Matthew 5.23, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, notice, you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go. Uh, In our New Covenant language, we might say, before the next opportunity to worship, you go. If you know your brother has something against you, you go and you first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Bitterness, wrath, anger, it all comes out of the cauldron of hate, doesn't it? It all comes out of the cesspool of dislike, of disfavor, bitterness and wrath and anger. And Paul says, put them all away from you. And he says, fourthly, clamor, clamor. The ESV translates this next word in Paul's list as clamor, krauge. could also be translated, by the way, yelling. You might have a translation that says yelling. could be shouting or screaming. Have you ever heard that from uh, the non-Christian crowd? People who have become bitter, they've, they've wanted to exert wrath, uh, their wrath upon those that have hurt them. They've become quite angry. And what that moves them to do is that they begin to seethingly yell or shout or scream at others. I just saw that uh, video of the Kentucky local clerk who was denying people whether or not that was right or wrong is beside the point of my illustration. Here's what's interesting. The people that wanted her uh, to do something for them, that was get a marriage license, these two homosexuals and all of the, the news media were surrounding. They had the microphones there. They had the cameras. They wanted to capture both what the homosexuals were asking for, what they were demanding, and what her response was. And they were there to capture the whole thing. And the more she said no, the more she said we're not going to be uh, extending marriage licenses to anybody at this time. And the more she was saying what she was saying, the more seethingly angry they became did you see that that might be an example here of the clamor that Paul is talking about the yelling the screaming the shouting speaks of a person who's involved in an angry quarrel now again this isn't a pretty list this isn't this isn't the kind of thing that Christians ought to be known for it's not the kind of things that we ought to be characterized by and they can't Because we're changed persons. We're different. Now, can we sin these sins? You bet we can. Of course we can. We can become bitter. We can have wrath in our hearts. We can even allow that anger uh, to exert itself in behavior. Uh, We can also yell and scream and shout ourselves. Ever been uh, in a situation like your home or mine in which conflict arises and... Yelling is the result. I've seen it. Everybody toward me, of course, me never toward them, but I've seen it. Sure, even Christian families, 
even Christian families who might be late to get to church and everybody's frazzled and people are upset with each other and they're yelling, close the door. Give me my toothbrush. We need to go. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. And of course, that's on a such a lower level of what we're talking about here. But even Christians can be tempted to do these things and show ourselves a poor testimony to others, uh, especially even other Christians in our homes, to say nothing of the non-Christian world. Of course, we can be involved in these things. But what do we do? What's the answer? How about this? Write down Proverbs 16.21. 16.21. It says, Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Oh, it's a great proverb. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And in that same chapter, by the way, you could also write down verse 23, just two verses later, because it says, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. He's judicious. He has discretion. He, he takes his spots. He, he knows judiciously when to speak and when not to speak. And his speech, when he does give his words to others, he adds persuasiveness to it because his words are sweet. By the way, the very next verse, verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Oh, it's like a sweet honeycomb. And if you are there in Proverbs 16, maybe you could turn just a tad over to chapter 21. Chapter 21. Look at verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now, I don't think he's particularly just trying to single out the women. I think he's just using that because there is a warning for all of us, including quarrelsome and fretful women. Look at verse 23. Whoever, and of course, men, that doesn't leave us off the hook. That catches us now. Verse 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself what? Out of trouble. Discretion, knowing when to speak, knowing when not to, and knowing what to say and when to say it, being gracious, being sweet-spirited, being persuasive, being judicious. This This is how we put on the new clothes. This is how we are now. This is how we can respond And so often, especially if you're evangelizing someone, or if you're in the home of someone, maybe you're living with non-Christians, or maybe you're in the work environment, or the school environment, where you hear so so much of the clamor, of the yelling, of the screaming, of the shouting, the bitterness, the anger, the wrath, the things that Paul talks here. Do you know how you can be persuasive? By working hard at not being like them so that they can see you and your opposite way of life and say, you're different. You don't use those words. You you don't say those things. You, You don't seem to get upset about this or that. That's 
how we can be a witness in our world. Here's another word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.31. Slander. Slander. Interesting word, blasphemia. Where do we get that word in our minds? Blasphemy. The English word. Blasphemia. Slander means to defame or to abuse someone verbally. To defame someone. To abuse them verbally. Proverbs 20 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, including this gossip that he's referring to. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler, one who is simple in his lips. One who is simple is someone who doesn't know the Lord, someone who's trying to spread gossip. And usually that gossip is of the slanderous nature. Look at Matthew chapter 15. And I'm just giving you some additional passages so that you can look at these passages at your leisure and you can meditate on them regarding ways and words that we need to be very, very careful of. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. For out of the heart, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That's our word. These are what defile a person. It's not what goes into the man. It's what's already there. Mark chapter 7. And it uses that same word, slander. And you know that's really the trade of false teachers. First Timothy. First Timothy. Chapter 6 uses that very same word for slander. This is what it says, 1 Timothy 6, 4, talking about false teachers who ply their trade with, with diabolical doctrine. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Very serious sin, the sin of slander. Defaming someone. Uh, attacking them, abusing them verbally. Recently had another counseling situation in which one of the spouses contended that they are under constant barrage from the other person, the spouse, whom they say they care about, want to be with. But they say it's so very difficult because of the constant barrage of verbal attacks by that person. And of course, when I hear that, you always want to hear the other side. You don't want to be guilty of Proverbs 18, 13, uh, and 17, which says, of course, that it's folly and shame to only hear one side or one man's case seems just until another comes and examines him. But if you were to talk to both of them or individually and you hear both sides and you know that someone is penchant on verbally attacking their spouse, here's one thing you could certainly say. These are the kinds of sins that Paul says here in a commanding way are to be put off. They're to be put off. They're, they're are, they are to be killed, mortified. 
And you ought to, to say to yourself, am I guilty of slandering other people? Have, have I committed those kinds of sins of late? They shouldn't characterize me. I'm a Christian. I'm a person who loves Christ. I don't want to be characterized as a person who verbally attacks anyone, let alone your, your spouse, other members of your family, members of the body of Christ here. I don't want to be involved in slander at all. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And then he says, kind of wrapping up the summary of this verse, verse 31, along with all malice. Do you see that there? Along with all malice. Passe kakia, all malice. It means to be malicious, mean-spirited, vicious toward those around you. That doesn't sound like a Christian, does it? Vicious, malicious, mean-spirited. Paul says you've got to put that off too. doesn't fit you anymore. shouldn't characterize you. That's not who you are in Christ. You, you ought to put that off and you ought to put in its place all of the opposites of these things. No bitterness, no wrath, no anger, no clamor, no slander, no malice. In fact, here's what you ought to do. Look at verse 32. Put off selfishness and put on kindness. Here's the answer to those six hideous sins. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the right kind of medicine. That's who we really are. Notice he says, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Present imperative. Constantly, continually be commanded to obey what this says. And what does it say? Be kind. Be kind to one another. Did you realize that one of God's very attributes is kindness? You, you want to be kind because you want to be like your Heavenly Father. He's kind. Psalm 34 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is is good. That word good? It's the very word Paul uses here. Kind. The Lord is kind. Psalm 145.9 The Lord is kind to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. Didn't Paul say in Romans 2.4 that it's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance? It's God's kindness. You, you, you should even say that in in a, in a bit of a hushed tone with sincerity and tenderness in your voice. Kindness. Kindness. Instead of a bitter, wrathful, angry, clamorous, slandering tongue, we're rather to put on a kind disposition because we want to be like God. He's kind to all. He's merciful. And so for all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the body of Christ. This is what we're like. This is what we're supposed to do. Kind, kindness toward one another. We're like God. We, we, we want to imitate Him. He says next, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. It means, by the way, to have healthy bowels. That's what it literally means, to have healthy bowels. And spiritually, it means to have a tender heart or tender affections for one another. 
Oh, this is so rich. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, just really one page over in my Bible, Philippians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then notice this, verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection is the same word that Paul uses here in chapter 4, verse 32. Affection. That means I have in my heart nothing but tender affection for all of you. That's what he's saying. I have tender affection for all of you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Same word, a tender heart. Being tender, tender toward people. You aren't rough. You aren't harsh with those around you. Characteristically now, we can all, we can all exhibit harshness at times. We can all be rough and, and gruff with people. Sure we can. But the characteristic nature of Christians is that we've put off the roughness. Uh, we're, we're not characterized by that anymore. We're different people and we're learning to be even more different each and every day. We, we are the kinds of people who progressively work toward being very tender to the, one, <coughs> excuse me, to the ones we love. You know, I think of an illustration about that, and that would be how so many of you work hard, not only in your jobs through the week, not only in your families, taking care of others around you, but also to the dear saints here at Thousand Oaks Bible Church. The way you stack chairs, the way you tear down, the way you set up. And we need, of course, so much more of that from every single person who counts this their church home. Being tender-hearted, to those around you, who needs help? How do you need help? How can I become involved? How can I help you? I've recently talked about certain needs that need to be met, like child care for those who want to go to the uh, the uh, principles of 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 parenting. I I I want you to be involved in that. I I want you to extend your your tender mercy, your tender heartedness to those young families who need to hear these principles for parenting. Life principles. That's just one example. You have needs. Someone uh, who's, who's disabled at the, at the moment. Someone who needs care. Someone who needs a meal. Someone who needs an encouragement. Whatever it is, you just want to be tender-hearted toward that person. And why? Because your, your, your bowels are bowels of affection for them. Your, your innards, we say in the South. The, the, the very most intimate part of you where you are saying in the deepest recesses of my soul, I love you. I care about you. I want to be tender toward you. You need help. I have seen a wonderful example of that with my son-in-law Shane. 
as he's taken care of Lauren, not only now in her pregnancy, but just a caring, loving, serving individual who wants to reach out and he wants to care uh, for his wife. That's a tremendous example. That's a wonderful blessing. And it's certainly a blessing for a father-in-law to see. Those are just a, a few tidbits of examples. They could be multiplied all the more about the tender mercy that we provide for one another. And not just reaching out to one another, but also what Paul says here thirdly, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, present tense. Paul commands the Ephesian believers to constantly, continually forgive one another. And and not just because you see an example of forgiveness on the cross, but in light of the forgiveness that you and I have received there. Not just the, the example of Christ forgiving us while He was there hanging on the cross, but for the very fact that He forgave us, we ought to want to work hard at forgiving others. And you know, this probably, this particular phrase, forgiving one another in verse 32, probably ties the bow right back to verse 31 and the very first word that's listed in that section on the six sins, that word bitterness. You know, the hardest thing it seems for so many Christians to do is to forgive those to whom they are often embittered because of the hurt. It could have been that you were slandered. It could have been that someone exerted their wrath upon you, their anger at you, either in their speech or their actions. And they may have done that so repeatedly that when the preacher comes along and says, well, this is what the Bible says, you need to forgive, just as Christ forgave you, so also should you. And someone, and I can hear it now, so easily responds, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much they hurt me. And of course, a potential glib response is to say, but how much punishment did Christ take on the cross? You say, that's not glib. But in their minds, it seems as though it is. Because they're centered, they're focused upon the hurt the hurt that someone has perpetrated against them. And because the hurt is so overwhelming as they perceive it, they can't see the cross. They can't perceive the forgiveness that was there, even when they themselves experience that forgiveness. Oh yes, we want to say, I love the forgiveness of the cross, and I want that forgiveness in my life as a testament to the idea of my own eternal life, and I want to know and to bask in the glory of that forgiveness. But don't tell me that I have to turn around and forgive somebody else because of the grand sins that they've committed against me. That's different. And of course we know the fact of the matter is, it isn't different. It seems different because of the fact that we've been wounded so terribly, but it isn't different. In fact, it's no different at all. You remember in Matthew 18, the the man who was asked to pay back the small indebtedness that he had? And when he was forgiven, and then he turned around, and someone was very much wanting him to forgive them, you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't it actually say that he owed an incalculable debt that he couldn't pay and was forgiven? Yes, 
But in comparison, in comparison, whether it's grand and incalculable or it's small and very minimal, the principle is the same. If I think someone needs to forgive me for the grand debt that I have against them, I'm obligated to do everything I can to pay it back. But if he says to me, you're forgiven, I'm rejoicing in that forgiveness. And if someone who has just a little bit against me and sins against me in whatever way, I'm obligated to forgive him the small debt or the greatest debt. It doesn't matter. This this forgiveness, especially as it relates to the idea, the concept of bitterness, is something that dogs many, many Christians, doesn't it? Counseling rooms are filled with those who cannot forgive. The Bible teaches that if you cannot forgive, then it might very well mean that you yourself have not been forgiven. Because if you know that the debt you owed has been paid, you are rushing to others to extend forgiveness to them. Now, if they say, well, wait a minute, I would like to forgive so-and-so, but they've never come and they've never sought my forgiveness. You know what your answer should be then? Here's what your answer should be. Well, then I stand ready to forgive you at a moment's notice should it come. And when the transaction itself is complete, I rejoice that forgiveness was sought and forgiveness was granted. But even if they never come, I cannot be embittered. I cannot be embittered. I cannot languish in that fact. I cannot, I cannot see that person in my mind and always think about the, the forgiveness that they've never come and sought from me and how wrong that is because what that could do is well up in you a bitterness that can become a seething anger. What you ought to be able to do, even if the transaction's never been finalized, you can still say this, I stand ready to forgive at a moment's notice And if it never comes, I'll not be embittered because of it. I will respond at a moment's notice to love that person, to care for that person, to hug that person, to surround that person with my arms of forgiving love. But if they never do that, I will not allow this to embitter me against them. I'm not going to have wrath and anger and malice and slander in my heart because the person simply will not come and repent and do the right thing. That's God's job. That's his job to work on that human heart. And the thing I have to protect against is my own heart becoming embittered against the people who have sinned against me and haven't come to me to make it right. Being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, That's the putting on for the sins of verse 31 that need to be put off. Thirdly, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Put off hypocrisy and put on godlike imitation. Put off hypocrisy and put on godlike imitation. Paul says, therefore. I think he's probably pulling the therefore back to not only Chapter 4, verses 22 on, I think he's probably pulling it all the way back from chapter 4, verse 1, and he may even be, in this very practical section, pulling it all the way back from the very first verses of Ephesians 4. But certainly chapter 4, verse 1, 
Therefore, as a result of what you've learned, therefore, as a result of these principles I'm teaching you, therefore, as a result of what you are to put off and all that you are to put on, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate God. By the way, this is the only place in our entire Bible where that phrase, that concept is explicitly stated, be an imitator of God. Now, other places, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, That's a kind of imitation, and sure it is. But this particular phrase, be imitators of God, only occurs right here. And it occurs in a section that talks very, very specifically and very practically about these particular virtues that are virtues which are godlike. God is kind. God is tender-hearted. God forgives. And God isn't named among those sins of verse 31. So therefore, if you're working on putting off the sins of verse 31, if you're working on putting on the virtues of verse 32, then chapter 5 verse 1 says, look at God and be like Him. If you've ever got a question about how to put on these things, what do they look like, uh, how are they practically to be applied, then look at the character of God and imitate that. Imitate your God. That's who He is. That's who He's known by. That's what He is characterized by. Imitate Him as beloved children. He's adopted you into His family, and because He's adopted you into His family, He wants you to be like the Father. Look at Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see this. This is a, a wonderful application of, I think, this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now that's a tall order. Verse 33, uh, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You see, we're, we're adopted by the father, we're his sons, and now we ought to imitate him. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the the pagans, the Gentiles do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Imitate God. Imitate what He's like. Imitate what He thinks. Imitate how he responds. You do likewise. Likewise, as beloved children, imitate your father. And then fourthly and finally, put off hate and put on love. Put off hate and put on love. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. And walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What a place to end. Paul just sweeps through this passage and says, and, and, and by the way, walk in love. Peripateo. Walk step by step in your Christian life in the sphere of love. Love for God, His love for you, love for others, their love for you. Walk in love. And how am I to see what that love practically looks like? As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You want to know what it looks like? Look at Christ's cross. Look at the love that was there. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. The cross of Christ is not just the example but it's the very cross where that love was rooted and grounded in the heart of a Savior for those He came to save. You know, that, that very concept of how much He loved us is the spiritual barometer of how we're to love others in the body of Christ. The spiritual barometer of our love for others is directly measured by the love that Christ has for us who gave Himself up for us. What a phrase. He gave Himself up for us. And it was acceptable to God because Paul says it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know how in the Old Testament using this sacrificial language, the idea that the, the burnt offering, the smoke that would rise from that burnt offering, would go up into the sky and it would, it would waft into the very nostrils of God as a fragrant aroma acceptable to Him. Now, it wasn't the final sacrifice. It was just many sacrifices that were to point to the ultimate sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice was this. When Christ, the very Son of the Father, gave Himself up for us to show us the extent of His love for His children, for believers, for the elect, for the bride. When we get to chapter 5, verse 25, we're going to see the kind of love that's pictured in the husband-wife relationship. Here it's pictured in the satisfaction of the father who has in his very nostrils a fragrant aroma, a fragrant offering when that sacrifice, the final complete sacrifice has been given to the father when Christ dies on that cross and the father says, I want you to be like me, imitate me in that I am satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ because through that sacrifice He expresses His love for you as believers. And when He expresses that love for you as believers, you look at that love, you examine that love, and you turn around and you love others likewise. What a love. What a standard. You say, I cannot meet that standard. 
I cannot do that. And the answer is, you can in the Spirit. You can with the Spirit's enablement and power. You can live like that. You can love like that because Paul commands it to be done. And God never gives us a command that He does not also give us the Spirit and His enablement to carry out. These eight principles of putting off and putting on, you bow your heads and I'm going to give them to you again. And as your head is bowed, ask yourself the question, examine yourself in light of these eight put-offs and put-ons and ask the Lord to give you some indication of what He wants you to work on. Put off lying and put on truthfulness. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Put off stealing and put on honest work. Put off corrupt talk and put on edifying speech. Put off old ways and words and put on their opposites. Put off selfishness and put on kindness. Put off hypocrisy and put on godlike imitation. Put off hate and put on love. Father, thank you for meeting us here tonight and for causing the conviction of my soul coming up so far short in these areas but wanting to strive to put on these things because they are commanded and right for us to do. And for anyone else here who has likewise been convicted, challenged, to change, to be putting off the things that used to characterize us, however slight they may be now in our lives, they seem to rear their ugly heads at the most inopportune time. And may may we help put those things off by what we're putting on. And may we be such noble Christians because we're striving to do these things so that both the Christian community, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ, let alone the non-Christian world around us, would see our love for one another and would know Therefore, that we are disciples one of another and disciples of Jesus. May it be so for the glory and for the sake of Christ. Amen. Number 16 in our hymnals, number 16, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. If you would stand as we...